I've taken my glasses off so I because I see better without them up close. I can't be sure this morning, but I would like to welcome Bernie Sanders here as well. <laughs> Somewhere in this array of people, Bernie Sanders must be seated. And uh, if you do have an extra pair of those mitts, uh, a few of us here, I think, would like a pair of those. What a, what a sensation a person can cause without even trying to. But it's a, maybe it's a phenomena of COVID-19 that we are looking for absolutely anything that can add a little bit of cheer to the lives that we have during this period of time. And I don't know if you've heard, heard it or not, but most recently he's uh, created some kind of, uh, of charity by uh, turning, turning over the proceeds of, uh, of what he's begun to look like and the objects that he's wearing. So they're being replicated and uh, sold out at the present time. But if you really stay on this story, I'm sure you'll be able to look like Bernie on any given Sunday. And so if you're here, if you're here uh, from Vermont, we're so glad to have you at Cornerbrook Baptist today. Now we're continuing in our study of, uh, of James. During the weeks, people are studying it in small, small groups. And uh, I'm continuing to do so myself as well um, as I prepare for each Sunday that I'm here. And today, very obvious from the, from the context of Scripture, rich man, poor, poor man. Now let me take you somewhere this morning. In the mid-1970s, a television series was, was debuted by this title. It was based on a novel of the same name by Irwin Shaw. There was also a movie version called Rich Man, a Poor Man. And for some of you as well, it has become a more recent Netflix production. The story, at least the 1976 miniseries, followed the lives of two Jordash brothers, Rudy and Tom. Now from the, from the post-World War II era, it followed the lives of these two men into the middle 1960s. It follows the, f the very familiar themes of those who have gone from rags to riches, or as some would say, from tragedy to triumph, which often works vice versa as well. It's common in lives lived over a significant period of time, the ebb and flow of fortune, some would say. Now, one of the lines of the miniseries tells of a crime within a family, a tragedy if this were to happen in any home. And I guess it's not just in the home it happens. But the mother of the two boys, Mary Jordash, confesses to Tom. It takes a lot of pain, and these are her words, it takes a lot of pain and love to raise a boy. Maybe I gave so much to Rudy, there wasn't enough left over for you. What an absolutely brutal admission for a parent to make. You see, favoritism within a family is a wound that never fully heals. None of us would like to go through life thinking that we're second best in the eyes of a parent. 
The Apostle James applies that kind of damaging concept to the entity we know as the family of God, the Church of Jesus Christ. James seems most willing, and that's what I like about him more each time I, I study him. He's more willing to confront the ugly things that can happen inside of an organization, but an organization that was designed to allow anybody and everybody to stand equally before God. We often offer up a platitude that the ground at the cross is level, which I understand is originally a Billy Graham quotation. But that hasn't always been the case, and it isn't always practiced in our culture, where tremendous pressure is exerted by forces like material wealth, influence, and politics. The latter being so evident in times of national crisis. There's obviously a problem in the early church for James to address the matter so strongly. And so let me read to you from James chapter 2, and this morning, the first 13 verses. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there. You notice the difference? You sit here, you stand there. Or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, and I want you to note that James is trying to keep these people close. This is not something that he's addressing to outsiders. This is brother and sister language. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? So you get the context of what James is saying. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin, and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. What a weighty line. Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. This is one of the most sobering verses in Scripture. Mercy. And I love these words. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Amen. 
Now, I used a rich man, poor man illustration at the beginning because one of the strong features of this film and this miniseries is the human drive to claw your way to the top. James later addresses those who saw upward mobility as something to strive for. And I realize that in preaching, I've got to draw a balance between people who do well and those who use their doing well to put others down. So that's the real, that's the real difference here. Here's where James is critical. Church leaders I've known coveted high office. Now start with my own position. Church leaders that I've known have coveted high, high office as much as any prime minister or president. I've watched it happen. I recall a time when the pastor of a popular large church, large church, died suddenly. It was hilarious to see just how many other pastors felt called by God to this church. The clamor to occupy the pulpit made many people wonder if God had called his servant home and was kicking back in heaven, watching the free-for-all to replace him. You see, it's not just Corinth where the personality cult flourished. It's always been alive and well, and we are not immune from it. What is disgusting is that the grab for position gets thinly disguised with a layer of pseudo-spirituality. I've heard of pastors who have been given special visions and heard voices in the night. They say it came from God, or I've known those who've gone on spiritual hunger strikes disguised as fasting to bribe God to see their point of view, to tell him how well they'd fit where the congregation was bigger and the pay envelope was thicker. You see, that kind of stuff happens inside of the ministry just as well as it happens inside of any sphere of influence that you understand. And I remember being a young pastor watching this kind of stuff unfold and saying, what's going on? Twenty people have heard the voice of God to occupy the same pulpit. Doesn't make sense, really. James feels it necessary to bring the Christians of his day really back to the teachings and the example of Jesus Christ. You see, if the example of Jesus counts for anything, he was specifically drawn to the poor, the broken, and the outcast. He mingled, if you remember, with a couple who didn't make it through their wedding without running out of refreshments and almost being ashamed of walking the streets after. Jesus called itinerant fishermen to his motley band of disciples. He allowed lepers to approach them and even touch them. He went where there were dead bodies and ritually defiled himself by being with them. He made friends with outcasts and publicans and soldiers and religious types alike. And essentially, Jesus was a homeless man even though he was God in the flesh. He once said, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. She didn't play favorites. If you want to see how this unfolds in Scripture, sit down sometime and maybe in one sitting or just in two, read the Gospel of Luke. Because Luke has a different kind of approach. 
He shows how universally welcoming Jesus was and how much he involved himself in the lives of such a vast array of people. He called them all to repentance, but his mission was deeply rooted in lifting the oppressed, the bruised, the broken, and the imprisoned. It flows clearly from his Sermon on the Mount, and it's also there in his address where he shocked the people of Nazareth by standing up saying, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, from Isaiah 6.61. You see, Jesus was rejected based on external human standards. And we often are too. He came from the wrong town. He came from despised Nazareth. Isn't there a line that says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He had a cloud of suspicion around the circumstances of his birth. There was a slur that went around in his time. Isn't this the carpenter's son? He spoke with an accent that labeled him as a Galilean, and thus he couldn't have been learned. He didn't attend the finest school of rabbinical thought, yet when he went into, into Jerusalem, he bested the Mosaic experts in open debate and left them speechless. Even from 12 years of age, he did that. He did not belong to the elitist, religious, or political parties of his time. He didn't have a big donor base to support his ministry. He didn't have a military background. But Jesus Christ, the carpenter of Nazareth, has changed the world like nobody ever changed it. And billions call him Savior today. Billions have given everything for him. And many, many have given even their lives for the cause of Christ and do so while we're standing here in our security today. While I was in Conception Bay South recently, I met up with a couple of friends who wandered into the coffee shop where I was preparing this sermon. There's a new Starbucks in Conception Bay South, and it really has a quiet environment, especially during COVID. I'll give you directions if you're interested. We spent some of our time talking about preaching as I as I had thought we would. You know, when pastors get together, they talk about what they do and what they're involved in. I told my friends, and here's where the conversation went. I told my friends that I would have loved to have been in the crowd on the first occasion when Jesus said these words, You have heard it said, but I say unto you. The religious content of the first century was based on precedent. Some scholar or some religious think tank had formulated an answer to a question or a scenario so that when a subject came up, there was a ready answer. Jesus ratcheted everything up by quite a number of notches. You see, conventional wisdom in his time played favorites. Everything was involved on what race you were, what religion you were, how you were involved socially, what you were, what status you held economically, what you had educationally in your pocket, the diplomas on your wall counted, and who you were in terms of your political alliances, even right down to the way a person was dressed. 
A person was judged according to who they knew, what they did, who their friends were, and how they looked. And to me, that's superficial stuff. Sadly, by James' time, the Christians were using the same yardstick for success in the church. Externals of a person's life were emphasized over the internal realities. Christians were trying to garner influence by pandering to those who came among them who were rich and perhaps famous. And they were using every method to try and climb the social ladder, even among those who had rejected the name of Christ. Their faith was being insulted. And they put their progress in their culture ahead of their loyalty to Christ. And for me as a Christian, that's a definite mistake. I trust I am more loyal to my Christ than I am to my culture. I trust I'm more loyal to the Word of God than I ever am to the Word of man or to the Word of my society. While this was going on, the poor and the disadvantaged were being neglected. And so James blasted them because they were neglecting the greatest of principles that Jesus taught and modeled. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said in this, all the law and the prophets are. It's all encompassed in that one thing. See, church is a funny place at times for acting on appearances. This came, came to mind. A pastor friend of mine lived in a fishing community where foreign vessels often docked to take on supplies. One Sunday morning, a solitary man showed up for the service wearing a beautiful Russian sable hat. He sat through the service. He didn't sing a word. He didn't smile. And my friend was sure he was a Russian a sailor because Soviet vessels would come into that town on times. Now, this was during the time of the Cold War when Russia was considered a communistic, atheistic, and repressive state, which I suppose in some regards it certainly was. My friend wanted contact with the evil empire, as Ronald Reagan, I believe, called it. Sadly, the man got out during the closing prayer, and no contact was possible. And he regretted it. But to his delight, the man was back in the evening service, and the pastor was determined that this godless Soviet would not escape him. So he played an old trick. He asked some, someone else to close the evening service in prayer, and when the prayer started, he ran back to the foyer, just as this man of mystery was donning his very distinctive hat and making for the doorway. He rushed to him and stuck out his hand and repeated very slowly, Do you speak English? The towering man looked at him oddly as though he didn't understand, but then he spoke, and my friend was not prepared for the answer. He said, Of course I do, old man. I'm from Cards Arbor. It was a harmless and hilarious exchange that my friend had been forced to live with. We've reminded him of this on so many occasions. 
But what damage does it do if we make deeper assumptions or exercise divisive biases and prejudices? James makes it clear that any person who exercises an agenda unlike that of Christ is really a lawbreaker and a sinner. James doesn't say you've made a mistake. He says you've crossed some kind of line. You see, closer to our time, Favoritism is a dubious but dangerous way of making the far uglier realities. Realities such as racism and oppression. That's where it leads. When favoritism enters the picture, what James identifies when taken to its worst extremes leads to bitterness and anger and strife. It leads to riots in the building held up as a symbol of democracy and equality. It is the seed plot of ethnic cleansing and jihad and racial supremacy and the vocabulary around words like genocide and apartheid and holocaust. That's where favoritism eventually leads in its extreme. See, the answer to being godly in our relationships our attitudes, and our actions is to pay strict attention to the inspired record of God's dealings with, you, with humanity. God acts in grace. God doesn't act with favoritism. Even when he singled out Abraham, it wasn't uh, favoritism. God acted Graciously, because he had a plan in mind. He showers us with his unmerited favor, and he encourages grace between each other. He has sent us the finest gift of grace in the Savior Jesus Christ our Lord. And grace is woven through the scriptures. It's modeled in the gospels and is promoted by the apostles all of the way through. God is here this morning in grace to reach out to a person who may not be in relationship with him. He's not here to say, Andrews, you're favored, or anybody else in the, con in the congregation is favored. Grace is available to us. See, favoritism is a crime against the grace of God. James mentions commandments and it is inescapable every time a commandment is broken, there is a form of favoritism that's exercised. Consider that statement. Every time a commandment is broken, there is a form of favoritism exercised. There is no lie or murder or theft without something or someone being favored above God or above His Word, or one person above another. Favoritism is anti-grace. Jesus excelled in grace, and when he did, God was pleased. When Jesus acted in grace, God spoke from the heavens and said how, how pleased he was with his beloved son. This morning, I want to give the Apostle Paul the last word in something that he said. He said, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human sta standards. Not many were influential. 
Not many were of noble birth. <laughs> Don't be insulted by Paul's words. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. What is weaker than a man hanging upon a Roman cross? Yet, the power of God is such that he turns even the cross into victory and turns it into glory so that even among us this morning, there are many of you who are wearing one around your necks or wearing it as a badge on your lapel. See, God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him. Here's the grace that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, redemption. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 30. Perhaps last week it was seeing our, the former president, George Bush the Younger, that brought this quote back. Not his words, but the words of his mom, Barbara, who we lost a couple of years ago. She said this, Never lose sight of the fact that the most important yardstick of your success will be how you treat other people. Your family, friends, and co-workers, and even strangers you meet along the way. Barbara Bush had the theme of James when she spoke those, those kinds of words. You see, the test of faith is not how we regard God, not only how we regard God, but how well we regard and treat each other, how well we regard the alien and the stranger. And this morning, I pray for the strength to pass that test of faith because it will mean my eternal destiny. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, thank you for the grace of God in Jesus Christ, who has called us out of darkness into light. Your word tells us we were dead in trespasses and in sins. But because of Jesus Christ, we are alive unto God. And today we rejoice in the gift of eternal life. God's gracious gift. May we, in all of our dealings, give a great deal of thought and attention to our interaction with others. May we do it inside the church, this household of faith where you've planted us, and may we do it more so on the outside, where each day, even during a pandemic, we run into broken, oppressed, lonely people. I pray that words of encouragement, words of grace, words of welcome, words of acceptance will flow. May we speak the truth in love and may God receive the glory for the lives that we live. For all of this, we ask your blessing and your power to make, it, to make it real for us. And now we ask that you would dismiss us with the blessing of God, 
Go with us, work through us, and unto you be glory, honor, and praise forever and ever. Amen. God bless you.